I'd love to invite you to grab a Bible. If you brought one with you, that'd be great. If you didn't, there's one right underneath your seat. And uh, we'd love for you to grab that and open up with us to Mark chapter 4. If you're using one of the Bibles that's underneath your seat, you'll find our text today on page uh, 849. 849. So, um, while you're making your way to find our passage today, I, I wanted to point out to you on our handout and, and hopefully all of you received one of those when you came in. We provide not only does a lot of information in there about what's going on, but we, it's also a place for you to take some notes through the message. Maybe a couple of things will really just grab you. You'd like to make a note, something you can process in your own kind of connecting time with God down the road. But, but I'd love for you to see that the title today simply of our message is simply Only Believe. Only Believe. You know, and... I think one of the great fallacies that a lot of people outside of the church and a lot of people inside the church have accepted is the idea that faith is easy, that believing is easy. You know, in fact, I think there are some of those on the outside of the church, the, the skeptics who would say that, it's, it, you know, in order to be a believer, you really have to be somebody who just kind of stops thinking, right? You just kind of have to check your brains at the door, right? Because believing in a God who's going to make everything okay is kind of like believing in the tooth fairy and the rest of that stuff, right? And for those of you who are struggling with that, that's why we have your kids go to Kids Connect, so you don't have to deal with those questions on the way home today. <laughs> you know, um... The other, the other, um, the, but, and so it's this idea that, that you really can't think and be intelligent and et cetera, uh, because faith is, 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 it just requires you to be kind of simple. But I think sometimes on the inside of the church, we, we, we get the same idea. We have this idea that faith somehow should just be kind of easy, right? I, I really shouldn't have to think about it. I really shouldn't have to work at it. It should be just something I feel, right? And we're going to look at, Four experiences today in the Gospel of Mark that are really going to blow that notion out of the water. And what they're going to prove to us is that actually believing in Jesus as God's Son is hard. To be a person who follows after Christ as a believer is actually hard work. You have to think hard and make tough choices and all the rest of the stuff that goes with it. Now we've been, for those of you who are just kind of joining us today, we're really thrilled that you're here. But to give you a little bit of the backstory, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark now for a number of weeks, and will be all the way up through the Easter season. And we've been pursuing through Mark, trying to get to know the real Jesus. We understand there's a lot of ideas out there about Jesus that make us feel good. Or there's ideas out there about Jesus and what it means to be a follower of Jesus that, that people have already rejected. But we're trying to look through the gospel of Mark, God's record to us, about who really is the real Jesus, so that by knowing the real Jesus, the truth can set us free. And we've already seen that Mark has written to us at God's direction, at God's inspiration. He's written to us what we would call an historical narrative. You know, sometimes we look at it and we, you know, we, we want to go back and say, well, you know, we, isn't a history supposed to be like in order, chronologically in order, right? And so that means one thing has to follow after another. But that's not Mark's agenda. Doesn't mean that Mark's making stuff up. 
But what he's doing is he's taking Jesus' Galilean ministry, which is what we're looking at today, when he's still in the north part of the nation of Israel, kind of far from the center of the faith in Jerusalem, and he's looking at all the things he did up there, and he's taking those real-life events, stuff that actually happened, things that Jesus actually said and did, and he's packaging them together to make a point. It's engaging in what we call an historical narrative. And he does that today using four pieces, four miracle stories. And he's trying to show to us two things. One, that if you just look at the life of Jesus, what he said, what he did, you can believe that he is the Son of God. Not just a great prophet, not a good teacher, not a good guy, not a guy who inspires us to be better people, but he actually is the Son of God. The second thing is that he really shows us the dynamics of what it takes to follow after Christ. What does it really take to believe? So I want to ask you to follow along in your Bibles while I read. I'm going to read a pretty lengthy passage of Scripture, and I think it's always far more effective if you follow along yourself. Because we're going to start in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, and we're going to read all the way through the end of chapter, 30, uh, chapter 5. So it's a number of verses. Some of you were here last week, and you said, well, I, didn't we deal with the end of chapter 4 last week? Yes. Have you never heard of a rerun? Today we're going to do a rerun, right? We're going to go back over some stuff that we looked at last week because it serves a transitional purpose. There's four miracles that are going to take place. So follow along in verse 5 with me, verse 35, chapter 4, 849 in your pew Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. This is God speaking to us through the pen of Mark. It says, on that day when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was already in the boat and other boats were with him. He's transitioning. Jesus has been teaching a massive crowd. In order to be able to do so without getting crushed, he had pushed out in the boat, probably belonged to either Peter or James and John because they were fishermen. He pushes out from the shore a little bit. He's teaching everybody. The day gets to the end. He says, you know what? Let's don't even bother to go ashore. Let's just go. And so they head out across the Sea of Galilee, about eight miles wide, 13 miles north to south, a place known for its violent, quick, life-threatening storms. Verse 37. And a fierce windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so the boat was already being swamped. But he, referring to Jesus, was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up, and they said, Teacher, don't you care we're going to die? I mean, the disciples had been here. They, they had actually been to the funerals of guys who drowned out on the Sea of Galilee. And they say, You know what happened to them? is happening to us right now. Water's coming over the sides. We're going down. And, and they, they rushed to the back of the boat. The fishermen rushed to the back of the boat to ask the carpenter, don't you care? He got up, rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, shh, shh, silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he turns and he looks at his disciples and he says to them, says, why are you afraid? Why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified. And they asked one another, who, who, who then is this, right? That he's able 
to command the wind and the sea. Then they came to the other side of the sea. So they make the journey after the sea is calmed. They make it across the eight miles. They get to the other sea. They come to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit, some of your texts say that a man who, was, who had a demon came out of the tombs and he met him. Now he lived in the tombs. No one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but it had snapped off the chains and smashed the shackles. So no one was able to subdue him. And always, night and day, he was crying out among the tombs and in the mountains and cutting himself with stones. You know, part of the backstory that you and I probably don't pick up in this is that this idea of restraining people who had, a, you know, who, who had these violent out actions, if you will, because of the demon possession, this idea of constraining them, restraining them with, with chains was actually a part of the medical treatment that they used to get. The idea was that if you can control their outward violence, it would calm their inward violence. And what you see in this experience is that you're, they're saying, we tried everything, over and over and over again, nothing worked. We, we don't, this, is, this is the doctor walking into this guy saying, there's nothing more we can do for you. We'll just try to keep you comfortable until you go. And so he'd been pushed out to the tombs. And even the slashing that he was doing was his own form of trying to self-medicate to drive out the demons that were within him. So this guy's in a pretty pitiful place, right? And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he, and he knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with us, Jesus, Son of God, Son of the Most High God? He says, I beg you, before God, don't torment me. It's interesting that, the, again, the, the spiritual beings, the demons were able to recognize immediately who Jesus is. And, and probably by calling Jesus by his name, they were trying to intimidate them. Because to, to know somebody's name was to have some power or authority or sway over them. So here's this guy who walks up and says, Jesus, I know your name. And I know you're the son of the most high. Just leave me alone, will you? Like, you, know, you don't want to mess with me, right? Kind of idea, because I know your name. For he had already told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. But Jesus, not being intimidated, says, what's your name? He asked him. He says, my name's Legion. He answered him, because we are many. One of the significant developments in here, we've seen Jesus cast out spirits earlier. But this guy just didn't have a spirit. He had had the spirit world within him, right? The Legion, the, the many. So this is a guy who's fully in the grasp of those who were against God and his goodness. In fact, an unshakable grasp, right? So much so that the shackles couldn't even free him. And he kept begging him to send them out of, not to send them out of the region. Now a large herd of pigs was there, feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us into the pigs so we may enter them. And he gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd of about 2,000, that's quite a pig herd, right? 2,000 pigs rushed down the steep bank into the sea and they drowned. Now, you know, sometimes we look at this and we're kind of like, you know, uh, why do the pigs have to die? 
right? You know, and, and Peter could, you know, old thing, just, you know, Jesus is supposed to be a good one. You know, you know, the point that Mark's trying to make here to us is that the exit of the demons and their entrance into the pigs and what happens to the pigs afterwards is living proof that Jesus actually delivered the man from all the demons. Just like earlier in the story when the paralytic is let down through the roof, right? And he's sitting before Jesus and Jesus says, hey, son, your sins are forgiven. You know, they're saying, well, you know, who, nobody can do that but God alone, that kind of stuff. And then, and then he says, well, you know, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven and nobody can really prove it or not. Or to say, rise up, take your pallet and walk. For me to say, you know, go out of the man and, you know, what's the, where's the evidence? And, and, and for this own man's convincing of what God had done for him, you see the demons leave and you see the reaction of the pigs and they, they go into the sea. It's living proof of what Jesus is doing. Verse 14, the men who tender, tended them ran off and they reported in the town, in the countryside, and people came to, went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and they saw the man who had been demon-possessed by the legion sitting there dressed and in his right mind. Say, man, man we, we tried everything and we couldn't even dent what was going on in this guy spiritually. And when they look at what Jesus has done, they say, man, they're afraid. So the eyewitnesses described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and, and told about the pigs. And then they began to beg him to stay. Hmm. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. Hmm. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed kept begging him to be with him, but, but, but he would not let him. Instead, he told him, go back to home to your own people. Report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So it went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And they were all amazed. The, the Decapolis there is a, a reference to, it's actually kind of the, if we were to translate it would mean 10 cities. And these were cities that were built by Alexander the Great when he, daunt, when he took over that part of the world in about 360, 370 B.C. And they had functioned as separate kind of Greek cities, even though they were on the east side of the Jordan, on the other side of Israel, for, for, for literally for a couple hundred years until the Maccabees took over and expanded the influence of Israel. And they were under their domination until the Romans showed up in 60 B.C., but but 60 years before Jesus was born, and they released these cities to kind of function on their own again. And in order to survive, they had formed this little network of 10 cities, and they were referred to as a Decapolis, right? So this is, this is the Gentile world living on the other side of the people of God. These are, these are the people who are far from God, but they're on the other side of the people of God from the rest of the world, from Rome and Greece and Macedonia and all that area. They're on the other side of the people of God. And he sends them back there to tell a story. Verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. And one of the synagogue leaders, a guy by the name of Jairus, came and and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and he kept begging him, my little daughter is at death's door. Come and lay your hands on her 
so that she can get well and live. So here's a guy. He's a synagogue leader. Jesus is already a synagogue outcast, right? And yet this guy is in such desperate need because of his daughter. He's willing to come in the midst of a huge public crowd and beg Jesus to come to his house and and see if he could do something for his daughter. This guy is, is crying out in an act of desperation. Verse 24, so Jesus went with him. And a large crowd was following and pressing against him. And a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. And on the contrary, she had actually gotten worse. Right? So here's a woman. She had spent every penny that she had on every experimental treatment she could find. And nobody had been able to do anything. It just got worse and worse. And what we don't really appreciate is not just a physical condition, but this would have affected all of her life because she would have been spiritually unclean. For you to sit at the table with her or dwell in a house with her meant that you couldn't participate in the religious life of the people. And if you didn't participate in religious life, you didn't know God. If you didn't know God, you were going to hell. So people said, you know what? You're out. I know you're sick. I know you're part of my family, but you're out. Because for me to touch you makes me unclean. And then, I, and then God can't love me anymore. And so this woman is in dire shape, not, not just physically, but emotionally, relationally, spiritually, intellectually. She's just, she's just devastated. So having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his robe. Why? She said, you know what? If he sees me coming and he knows my problem, he's not going to let me touch him because I'm going to make him unclean. So she sneaks up behind him. She said, if I can just touch his robes, if I can just touch his robes, I'll be made well. And instantly, her flow of blood ceased. And she sensed in her body that she was cured of her affliction. But at once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out of him. And he turned around in the crowd and he said, who touched my robes? Who was that? Who touched me? And the disciples said to him, you know what? What are you talking about? Everybody's touched you, right? You know, well, you know, that guy, idea. And so Jesus is looking around. At the same time, think about what's going on in Jairus' mind, right? He's called for the ambulance, and the guys have stopped for coffee along the way, right? You know, say, hey, let's get some breakfast, right? You know, we'll, we'll get there eventually, right? Can I, you know, and, and, and so Jesus is in the midst of this emergency trip to save this guy's daughter, and he stops to look for the woman in the midst of the crowd who's reached out and touched him. And been impacted. So looking around to see who had done this, then the woman, knowing what had, done, had happened to her, came with fear and trembling, and he fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She confessed. And Jesus looks at her and says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be free from your affliction. And while he was still speaking, while he's having this conversation with her, finishing his second cup of coffee, people come from the synagogue leader's house and say, you know, your daughter's dead. There's no further reason for the teacher to come. But Jesus, when he overheard what was being said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid. Only believe. A challenge to us today, right? Only believe. Believe. Don't be afraid. You got lots of questions. You're not. You're not sure. Don't be afraid. Just believe. 
And he did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James' brother. And they came to the leader's house, and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly, which is what they did to grieve back then. Actually, sometimes you, you hired people to come be a part of it because the more important you were, the more people you had to have grieving. And so they would hire people to show up and be mourners, and they would make a big deal out of it. And there was actually regulations as to how many people you had to have. And so they show up, but this seems to be genuine. These people are weeping and they're wailing loudly. And, and, and when he goes into the house and he sees them, he says, why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead, but she's asleep. And they laughed at him. Now, if you really think of that moment, the only reason why they laughed is because they had absolutely no doubt in their mind that, that the child was really dead. I mean, how else could you sit in the home of a parent who's just lost a child and laugh unless you were convinced that the child was really gone? But he put them all outside, it says, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, that would be Peter, James, and John, and he entered the place where the child was, and he took the child by the hand, and he said, Talitha Kayum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately... Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, and she was 12 years old. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and said that she should be given something to eat. So the eating is a part of, of the health and kind of moving forward. But what's interesting to me is when you look at this, this whole thing is that Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody. There's a whole group of people who have been wailing over this dead girl, Right? And now she's playing out in the backyard. What is there not to tell? Right? You know, no, lock her in a closet. Don't let her out until she's 20. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's an interesting thing. I've got to ask him that question when I get to heaven. I've got a couple other ones in front of that. But uh, when I get there, I've got to ask him that question. So our time's moving away. Let, let me just process some points for you and I. Right? Again, the God-given agenda that Mark has is for you and I to really be able to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he's walking through the life of Christ, showing us the things that are the undeniable evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. And you see that in this text in four different ways. All of them indicating that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. Jesus Christ is the Lord of all the forces of nature. He can stand in a boat and say, shh, And the storm goes still. He is Lord over nature because he's the creator of nature. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God because he has authority over all of the spiritual realm. Not just an individual demon, but a legion of demons. And when he says go, they go. And he is the Lord over the spiritual world, over the spiritual forces. He is the Lord over all of physical sickness and disease. This woman who was literally beyond help, right? This is a woman who spent every penny that she had, getting every treatment that she could get, and yet nothing had worked. She only was getting worse and worse. She was getting more and more isolated from her community, less connected, farther away from God. There was nothing that could be done for her, and Jesus just by walking through a crowd and being touchable makes her whole. Jesus is the Son of God, Lord of all, 
because he is Lord of all of our sickness and disease. But he's also the, the Lord over life and death. He, ultimately, he's the Son of God because he has the authority and the power over all life and over all death. Later, he's going to say in gospel, John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And as he walks into that room with just the father and mother and his three disciples, and everybody is outside saying, this guy is nuts, this girl is dead, he, he, he's lost it, that's why we're laughing at him, he touches and she's alive. Because he is the Lord. The Son of God. Mark gives us four distinct messages, evidences that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that that should be good news for us. That's exactly how he starts his gospel. The beginning of the good news, the gospel of Jesus the Christ, who is the Son of God. And he's fourth, right up. All four miracles show that Jesus is, is Lord. Lord over nature. Lord over spirit, the spiritual world. He's Lord over sickness and disease. He's Lord over life and death. He is God. But embedded in this passage is the challenges that it really takes to believe. But say, oh yeah, okay, I can believe that. No, 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 no. let's do the hard work. We, we got to believe. Right? And, and, it's, and it's not easy. It's hard work. Only believing is hard work. How do I see it in this text? Right? Let's look at the disciples. Right? Here they are. They're, they're, they're in the boat. These guys are the sailors, right? These are the fishermen. These are the guys who have spent a lot of their lives out on the sea. They have been to the funerals, right, of the guys. And so here they are. They're in the midst of, But these are also the guys who were in Peter's house when his mother-in-law was sick and Jesus prayed over her and she got up and she began to serve. These are the same guys who had seen Jesus cast out demons, had raised the paralytic up and he walks out the door carrying his pallet. They'd seen Jesus do all these miracles. But when you look at these circumstances, man, we're going to drown. Right? I mean, they look at, you know, yeah, 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 I get that. You can do all that kind of stuff, but I've been here before. I've done this before. I've seen what happens, and we've got no hope. And, and, and believing is hard work. Here's some of the, the phrases I would use for you. So, one of the challenges that we face in really believing is that our circumstances seem so much stronger to us than our convictions. What we believe about God just doesn't measure up about what we see around us. Right? Here the disciples say, we know what you, we, we believe that you are the Son of God, right? We've seen you do all this stuff, etc. But we're in the boat. We see the darkness. We feel the water coming over the sides. We know what's happened. We've been to our friends' funerals. We, we know what the circumstances mean, and there's nothing you can do. Until Jesus gets up and goes, shh. And it goes quiet. See, believing is hard work, you know. You see this woman, you know, that, that comes up. I think sometimes our, our you know, our, our amount of effort in it is, really diminishes our expectations in what God can do. You know, this woman, she, she reaches out to Jesus in the crowd as a lax act of desperation. 
You know, I'm probably reading movies between the lines. This is only what I think. But if this woman had any other alternative, she would have been spending her money on that. If she had read in some medical journal there's some kind of solution for this that said halfway around the world, she would have been finding a way to buy a ticket. But instead, she was in the crowd because she had no other alternative. And in some ways, as she reached out to touch Jesus, she didn't really expect a whole lot to happen. And when she feels in her own body, right, that she's, getting, she's healed, she's amazed. And she has to change her pathway. As Jesus grows, who's that? Who's that? And she, she responds. I think sometimes we look at all the effort we expended, and then we just be, well, you know, God just can't do any different. And it lowers our expectations. But the people I really love are, 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 are the people from the 10 cities, right, the Decapolis, right? They show up. And, 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 and they're looking at, you know, let me, let me be a little graphic, right? So if you don't like graphic, put, put, there are the carcasses of the pigs floating out in the water, right? And here's the guy who used to be nuts. Can I use that terminology? Just cutting himself and violent and attacking and yelling and screaming and everything else. This guy's sitting there and he's holding an intelligent conversation. And they look at the whole thing and they say, just go away. Just go away. Right? Because sometimes our worries really just overwhelm our wonderment, right? Well, where's this going to go? What is this going to mean? How's that going to work out, you know? And we have all those kinds of challenges in our own journeys. You know, if I really follow Christ, what's that going to mean for this and that and whatever, you know, and how's that going to change my career and, and my money and my relationships and my marriage and et cetera, you know, and what are my parents going to think? And, and we have all these worries. And so, you know what? You know, I know what I've heard, but just go away. It makes it too complicated. See, only believing is hard work. I also want you to see a huge piece in this, and we need to move quickly. You, you look, you, you, there, there are five groups of people who respond to Jesus in this thing. That's six, right? Here we go, five. I'm back to one, two, three, four, five. There we go. There, you've got the disciples in the boat. You've got, you've got the demoniac. You've got the woman in need. You've got the little girl who's dying and her family. That's going to stand for one. Opposed to them, you have the people from the cities who say, just go away. What's the difference between those four and the one? And here's the difference. The four, they knew. They absolutely knew they needed a deliverer. They needed a savior, right? They knew that they had a need. The other guys, not so much. We kind of, so you, the guys in the boat, we're going down. We're the sailors. He's the carpenter, but we're still going to say, you got any ideas? Because they got needs, right? I mean, we're going to die. They know, the woman, right? Tried everything. She finally shows up and tries to reach out to Jesus. The synagogue leader, you know what? I may lose my job. I may, may lose my place in our community because Jesus is an outsider. We're already looking for ways to kill him, and et cetera. But my need is so great because my little girl is about ready to breathe her last, and he shows up in need. The demoniac, he, he's only out in the tombs because there's no hope for him anymore. He knows he's got needs. The guys who show up to witness what had happened, you know, I don't know if I really need this or not. I got to tell you, Part of the hard work of faith 
is to stay conscious of the fact that we need a Savior. And that's not always pleasant to do. You know, it, it, and, and this is not only for somebody who hasn't ever taken that first step to say, I'm going to follow after Christ and confess it through being baptized, to get to this place where saying, you know, I, I know I matter. I know I matter to God. I'm created in his image. I'm, I'm valuable to him. He loves me in Jesus. But you know what? I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. And to let that need sink deeply in. So much so that we're ready to push our way through a crowd to reach out and touch Jesus. So much so that we're, we're ready to, to risk our career and to risk our family and our reputation to go look for the master to come heal our daughter. We, we, we need to be so... And, and, and it starts with being aware of our need for Christ. And it stays. Being a follower of Christ for somebody who's been doing it for over 40 years means I have to start every single day with an awareness. I need a Savior today. I need a Lord to guide me. And, and i got to tell you, the, the, the hard work of believing is to stay conscious of the fact that we need a Savior. Two more quick points. You know, part of the reason why faith is hard is because it doesn't just look backwards, but it also seeks to change us going forward. You know, this whole interaction of Jesus with the woman in the crowd, right? She, show, she, show, she gets what she needs, right? She gets what she came for, right? She shows up, and she just wants to sneak through the crowd and, and find a way to touch Jesus just a little bit. And she's trying to get away before anybody finds out that she may have made him unclean. And as she's going, she said, I've been healed. She gets what she came for. But that's not really what all that Jesus had to offer. So he's saying, well, where, where'd she go? Who is it? Who is that? And, he, and when he gets it, he says, listen, daughter, your faith has made you well. And then he says, what? Go in peace. One of the reasons why faith is hard work, because it doesn't just allow us to, to be forgiven for our past, but it mandates that it steps into our lives and changes our future. And that's hard work, changing you know, one of the saddest things to me is I, I have, you know, I've been pastoring churches. I, I was telling the guys before we go back, I have a baptismal robe out back, right, that is more than 30 years old, right? My parents gave it to me in 1987 for Christmas, right? Right after I got out of seminary, my first church I was pastoring, they gave me a baptismal robe to use for baptism. It's so yellowed now, I don't use it anymore, right? And, 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 and over all that journey, the saddest thing for me is to see somebody who has said that they were a follower of Christ and yet over decades have never experienced any change. They're just as angry, just as critical, just as selfish, just as prideful, just as, as discouraged. You know, and, and, and because faith is hard work. Believing is hard work. It's not just a matter of showing up and touching Jesus and, okay, my problems are gone. Not, you know, but it's about actually being different. It's going in peace, in the person that Jesus has created to be. And that takes work. One last point. And I kind of already alluded to this. You know, it, we see such a contrast in this passage of Scripture, right? Jesus is in the room with the parents, and the three guys of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He heals this girl, and he says, don't tell anybody. I mean, I know she's going to walk around with it, but don't tell anybody, Right? 
Because he's in the region of the world where he's going to keep ministering, trying to define what it means to be a suffering servant. And not just a, just a, not a Messiah who heals, right? But a suffering servant who leads the way into eternity. But what about this guy who was, a, who was possessed by the legion? You know, he says to Jesus, man, I want to go with you. I want to go with you. I want to go with you. And Jesus said, you know, nah, you know what? I want you to go home, and I want you to walk the streets of your neighborhood. I want you to go to the same stores that you've always gone to. I want you to try to get your old job back that you haven't had in a long time. And I want you to tell all those people what God has done for you and the mercy that he's showed you. You see, on the other side of the Jordan, there was no light. And that man was sent into the darkness to tell the story of the way he got the light. And, and I got to tell you, part of the hard work of faith for you and I is that is it has to alter our sense of life mission, our life agenda. God's not about making us healthy, happy, and whole as an ending point. That's a means to an end. God does want to make us happy, healthy, and whole, but he wants us to make us happy, healthy, and whole so that you and I can go be a light to the world, so that we can go tell the people who live around us, the people we work with, and etc. And And that has to alter our life mission. He makes us happy, healthy, and whole. He heals that all up and brings it together in a bundle of peace so that you and I can be his ambassadors in the midst of the darkness so that someday there won't be any unlit candles left, but that everybody will have stepped out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. You know, and so the, the best way I can end our service today is to simply extend the invitation to you that Jesus extended to the father of this young girl. Don't be afraid. Only believe. For those of you who have never made a decision for Christ before, you know, and maybe you've had religion in your background, some church, whatever, but you've never said, you know what, I, I, I've made a specific conscious decision to ask Jesus to forgive me realize that he's the only way that that's ever going to happen and commit my life going forward with him, my invitation to you in his name is to only believe. Sense your need and only believe. For the rest of us, some of us who are, I'm looking around this room, we've been followers after Christ for decades. We need to be a people who re-embrace our need for a savior. And we need to take on the mission of telling the story of what God's done for us in our own neighborhoods. Don't be afraid. Only believe. God, thank you for your word to us today. Father, I pray we'd leave here changed. The disciples were changed. The demoniac was changed. This precious woman was changed. This family and this little girl was changed. God, let us be like them as we believe not like those who want to send you away, but like those as we believe. God, today, we accept your invitation to only believe. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen.